This week on Geek Explained, Joker, directed by Todd Phillips and starring Joaquin Phoenix in the title role, is now playing in theaters. And today, we're going to talk about it. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we can explain it. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is part two of Joketober. That's right, the entire month of October is dedicated to the Clown Prince of Crime. We're talking comics, we're talking film, we're talking TV, we're talking animation, video games, all of it this month. Last week's episode, if you haven't taken a listen, do so, uh, was on the Batman Beyond Return of the Joker animated film. I love that film. We went deep into it, talking about uh, some of the production history, talking about how that film was chopped up and censored and then brought back in an uncut version. Everything that I love about that film is in that episode, so definitely check that out. This week, though, we are talking about Joker, directed by Todd Phillips and starring Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, Today's going to be a full spoiler-filled review. I'm going to repeat that. Spoiler-filled. If you have not seen the film, go watch that, come back, listen to this, and we're going to discuss. We're going to be talking about everything. So on top of that, we've also got our new uh, weekly review. This time we're taking a little bit of a different path when it comes to the weekly review. Uh, With Arrow Season 8 starting next week, I thought this week we could start off with just talking about all of the other Arrowverse shows that debuted this week. Because basically, all of them did. We're talking Supergirl, we're talking The Flash, we're talking Batwoman. All premiered this week. And they are, I guess, saving Arrow for next week. So we're going to kick off Arrow Season 8 next week. But this week, it is going to be a triple feature. We're talking... Supergirl, Batwoman, and The Flash, episode one of all of their new seasons, so look forward to that, and of course, this week's Comics Countdown. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. Ladies and gentlemen, lots of news this week. This is a news-heavy week, and I kind of knew it would be uh, with New York Comic Con this past weekend, and uh, just a lot of stuff going on in the uh, in the geek realm as it is. But um, so we're going to start off. We have our four, as always, our four categories: film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. And we're going to start off with some miscellaneous news. This is. Uh, some shameless self-promotion, in fact. So, um, I have work coming out. I have, uh, as 
Some of you might know who listen to us. I am not just a podcast host. I am also an actor, both on screen and in voiceover. And I have a couple projects that are coming out in the next week or so. Um, first off, we have the uh, web series, the mini series, Dark Chronicles. That's being released over on YouTube. Chapter one, it's going to be four chapters. Chapter one, entitled Possession, was released this past Monday as of this recording recording and is available for you to check out on YouTube. Uh, definitely go check it out. It lays a lot of the groundwork and kind of gives you the vibe that the rest of the chapters are going to go for. It is an anthology series, so it's going to be four different stories, um, all with their own both supernatural and uh, horror uh, twist. So definitely check those out. And um, yeah, uh, next week is uh, chapter two, which is going to be The Relic. Really excited about that one. Uh, but definitely go check out Possession now. And then also next week, and I'll talk about this a little bit more in the news for next week, I have a movie coming out. So um, next week I'll give you the whole breakdown on that. But um, just to give you a little tease, if you want to check out, if you want to Google One Night in October, uh, definitely do so. And um, yeah, more to come on that next week. But moving over to uh, non-personal news, uh, we're going into the miscellaneous to start us off here. And uh, first off, we have some gaming news. Red Dead Redemption 2, which is um, one of the greatest games I've ever played in my entire life, uh, has been rocking both the Xbox One and the PlayStation 4. But a lot of uh, PC gamers were really disappointed that it didn't come out for them because, you know, the whole PC Master Race and stuff. I'm not going to... I'm not going to make a stance on the console wars versus the uh, the battle against the PC Supreme Leaders. But um, for those of you who are PC gamers, there's good news. Red Dead Redemption 2 is officially coming to PC on November 5th. I'm assuming that it's also going to be bringing its uh, Red Dead Online component with it, but I'm not, like, confirmed on that so um take that what you will but really excited for pc gamers i know a couple who will be very excited to hear this news next up we have uh more gaming news that is that we have the official final playable character for marvel's uh avengers game the avengers project or marvel's the avengers whatever you want to call it uh new york comic-con this past weekend they unveiled the final character as well as a big old story trailer and that final character is not who you think it is it's not who i thought it was going to be it's not hawkeye it's not captain marvel it's not spider-man it is Miss Marvel, Kamala Khan, is the final uh, original playable character for the game. Now, this is not taking into account any DLC, which may come down the line if they end up adding characters and whatnot. But uh, looks like Kamala Khan's going to be like the primary playable character, and that she's going to be the one kind of driving the narrative. We do, we did get like a. a hint that it was going to be her in the first couple trailers which actually showed her during the events of a day and the uh opening monologue from the very first trailer the reveal trailer but it was really cool getting to see how she's going to be interacting it looks like she's going to be the one uh trying to pull the avengers together very uh tim drake style trying to get batman to take on a robin but 
I really like it. I like her design. It looks really cool, and I'm looking forward to it. I know some people were disappointed. They wanted Hawkeye. They wanted uh, Ant-Man or the Wasp, but I'm sure those characters are coming in their own way, in their own version. So I'm excited, and Kamala Khan's a great character, so really looking forward to playing as that character. Uh, next up, also in gaming news... We have the official announcement of the PlayStation 5. The PlayStation 5 was announced by Sony to be releasing in holiday of 2020, which I don't know how to feel. Um, I was just really getting comfortable with the PlayStation 4. I've had this for like maybe a year now, and I was like, yeah, really feeling good about this. And then and I, I guess it's it's pretty true to character because I end up getting most consoles, you know, at near the end of their uh, their shelf life. So I'm interested to see exactly what they do. There's been a lot of rumor and uh, speculation that cross-platform uh, gaming could be coming soon, but we will just have to see on that. And then in a, in a little bit of uh, different miscellaneous news here, at New York Comic Con, it was also unveiled that Marvel will be releasing a Stan Lee action figure. Uh, he will be accompanied by a Captain America shield that has been retrofitted to include Stanley's signature. I think it's really cool. He is forever immortalized in action figure form. We've had pops of him before, but never really an action figure. So I'm excited about it. Um, I'm sure that it's going to sell out super, super quick. But um, I'm, I'm excited that Marvel decided to do this. And then finally in miscellaneous news, we have some book news. This having to do with Star Wars Project Luminous. Now, Project Luminous has been hinted at for a very long time now, and uh, we're finally getting some in info on it. And uh, this info, of course, we also got at New York Comic Con. So I'm going to read uh, what we have, uh, what we know, because the folks over at Dork Side of the Force put together a full article kind of compiling everything that we know about Star Wars uh, Project Luminous. So I'm going to be reading directly from their article. Um, you can check it out if you want to see the full article, but I'm going to be kind of taking some snippets here. Um, we do know that it is going to be uh, a multimedia kind of release. It's going to include at least five authors, those being Claudia Gray, Justina Ireland, Danielle or Daniel Jose Older, Kavan Scott, and Charles Sewell. Charles, Charles Sewell has kind of been the, uh, the patriarch of Star Wars comics since they moved back to Marvel. So I'm glad that he's getting to be uh, Part of this it's really cool uh article says here it will also not just be books but will span across a number of different publishing outlets including disney press del rey idw publishing and marvel comics so we're going to be getting comics we're going to be getting books i'm really excited that's really cool um i think ever since the legends uh star wars stuff got bumped out of continuity people have been really looking for uh good star wars novels and we've gotten like different little ones here and there. The Thrawn stuff has been really good, but I'm looking forward to this kind of pushing the narrative forward. And the big thing, the biggest tease, uh, was something that they flashed up on the screen for the crowd. It didn't like explicitly say anything, but I think it says a lot from um, from what it doesn't say. So the text read as thus: "The Force is what gives a Jedi his power." It's an energy field created by all living things until Project Luminous 2020. So 
Obi-Wan originally said most of that quote. I would say the first, you know, three quarters of it. But um, I think it's really interesting that this is, might change the Force in some kind of um, distinct way. Especially with uh, Rise of Skywalker coming out and this coming out in uh, 2020. So after Rise of Skywalker, uh, there's a lot that can be uh, inferred here. So I'm looking forward to it for sure. Moving on to film news and starting off with uh, The Suicide Squad being directed by James Gunn and starring a whole lot of people and a whole lot of red shirts. Uh, we got a little tease as to what could potentially be uh, Peter Capaldi's role within the film. He was, of course, revealed to be part of the cast with the uh, cast announcement that James Gunn posted up a week or two ago. And it shows Peter Capaldi on set with another one of the actors and his head is shaved bald and so a lot of people have been inferring that he might be playing mr freeze and while i would be so down for that there are a couple other characters that i think um he could possibly be uh aside from Mr. Freeze, which would be fantastic. I think he would make a fantastic Hugo Strange if they wanted somebody to be like the psych eval person on the team, if they wanted to include him in that way. Uh, he could do plenty of running. We saw that in Doctor Who, but uh, some of the more physical stuff, I'm not sure how I would feel him being a part of that. Now, when it comes to any kind of like prosthesis or anything, because we did hear that he was having to do some kind of like prosthetics. Um, I think it'd be really cool if he was uh, Kirk Langstrom. He could be Man-Bat. That would be really cool, speaking towards his like kind of scientist uh, style, him kind of essentially being the Bruce Banner of the team, getting to be a scientist who can also throw down when he needs to. And then, of course, as I said the first time when this was revealed, I really still want him to be Clock King. I know it's ridiculous, but him having been the Doctor previously, it would make so much sense to me. So um, there's, there's a few roles that I think are available for him. Uh, next up, we have uh, some news for the Joker, which is, of course, our main uh, our main course for the episode. And Joker broke some box office records. It is officially the biggest box office opening for October, opening at, I believe it says, uh, $94.6 million, which beats out pretty much every other Halloween or uh, October release we've gotten. That includes It Chapter 1. Um that's exciting. I'm really, really excited. This film, no spoilers, not until we get to the actual review, uh, is definitely deserving of some accolades. So I'm excited that I got to do that. Uh, speaking of accolades, Lupin the Third, one of the greatest anime of all time, uh, released a second trailer for its uh, CGI theatrical film, Lupin the Third, the First. Um, which makes no 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 sense, but as a Japanese title, I guess does make sense. Um, it released its second trailer. This is going to be an all CGI movie in the vein of like a Tintin or anything like that. Um, it looks gorgeous. It really, really does. If you haven't watched this, go on YouTube, look up this trailer. It looks absolutely beautiful, and I hope that. It gets some kind of limited uh, U.S. release because I would go watch that for sure. And then finally in film news, we got some uh, reveals and first looks at the two next uh, animated films coming from DC. That being Superman Red Sun and Justice League Dark Apocalypse War. Um, looks great. 
Uh, it does look like the Justice League Dark Apocalypse War is going to be uh, the sequel to the original Justice League Dark film. So it's got that Phil Barassa art style, um, probably still set in that uh, New 52 DC uh, animated film universe. And then Superman Red Sun, I think, which to me is a little bit more exciting. Um, we got some looks at Wonder Woman. We got a look at... Uh, Soviet Batman. I'm really, really looking forward to this. This is going to be a really, really good film. And then moving on to TV news, we've got all TV, all DC news. Uh, all the TV news from this past week has been uh, DC focused, so we're going to get right into it. Uh, first off, a little bit of stuff going into Crisis. We got another picture. Brandon Routh has been just killing it with the uh, the social media when it comes to promoting his role as Kingdom Come Superman in Crisis. Uh, he posted up a photo of him in his Clark Kent wear as, I guess, editor-in-chief of the Daily Planet. At least that's what it says on the door behind him. So it does look like, specifically from this photo, that he might, this might still be the same Superman from Superman Returns. Because uh, he looks the exact same in his Superman or in his uh, Clark Kent disguise here that he did in that film. So I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with him. I'm so excited. And then we also got the reveal that Lila, uh, for those of you who don't follow the DC CW shows, she is Diggle's wife and also, I believe, now the director of Argus. Um it looks like he's going to be stepping into her role as Harbinger here for this film. It was teased way back, and I want to say like season two of Arrow. God, can you imagine all those years ago? Um, that her uh, her name was Lila, Lila Michaels, and Lila was the name of Harbinger from the comics. And in the, I want to say it was the Suicide Squad episode, the very first one, her code name in the field was Harbinger. So I love that they played all the way back to earlier seasons of these shows to get you know to pay off some of this stuff and i'm really hoping that means that we're gonna get john diggle green lantern i don't know if that's what's gonna happen but i really 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 hope it does uh, moving on next to um, some Batwoman stuff. Uh, Batwoman premiered this past week, as you know, and she will be part of our triple feature in the weekly review. Um, but I saw that we have a new character announcement for Batwoman, and that is Thomas Elliot is going to be joining, joining the cast. Who is Thomas Elliot, you ask? Well... Uh, you may have heard something about recently this story called Batman Hush. Well, Tommy Elliot, despite what the not great movie tries to tell you, Tommy Elliot is Hush. And I'm really curious what they do with him in this show because it feels like he's just kind of tacked on to have a character there. Um, I'm not sure if it makes sense because his whole reason for being a villain was his connection with Bruce. Um, if they try to kind of retool that to fit Kate, I don't know if that's going to work so well. But we're just going to have to see. I am willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and hope that it ends up well. But we will, uh, like I said, we're going to have to see from here. And then finally in TV news... 
we got two new series announcements first from dc universe and that is that we are getting bizarro tv or bizarro world tv which seems to be like a bunch of different like what if stuff or alternate looks at um different uh dc worlds it feels like a very reactionary like oh man marvel's doing what if we got to do this but i hope that it's able to kind of set itself apart from that uh because bizarro world is rife with um possibilities when it comes to storytelling so we'll see on that and then the second one the one i'm more excited about personally is uh deathstroke knights and dragons this is going to be a uh, animated series focused on Deathstroke, who is being voiced by Michael Chiklis. Um, perfect casting, voice-wise. As a voice actor, perfect casting. Um, and it looks like it's going to be all focused on Deathstroke. I'm interested because the CW Seed, which is the one that's putting this out, usually uh, only does the animated series that connect to other shows, like they did Vixen, which ended up kind of translating into Arrow and then later on Legends of Tomorrow. They also did um, Earth-X, which of course went into the Crisis on Earth-X. They did Constantine, which helped out with Constantine and later on in um, Legends of Tomorrow as well. So I'm interested because it's not being voiced by Manu Bennett, who is the um, Deathstroke in the CW-verse, and I hope he comes back for Crisis. No confirmation, but I hope he does. Um, but, uh, it's, it's entirely possible that this could be just a completely alternate different take. So we will just have to see on that when it releases. And then finally, we got a bunch of comic news, which of course makes sense, New York Comic Con, but I'm really excited about this stuff. So let's dive into it. First off, DC, I think with the biggest news, uh, has announced that it is compiling an official dc timeline um good luck with that with the multiple crises the multiple reboots is gonna be hard to nail that down but uh dan didio and jim lee seem very confident in their ability to do so we will see it does from the teases that we got say that the first generation of uh superheroes starts with wonder woman not with superman he doesn't show up until generation two so i'm really curious what this uh full um timeline is going to look like and how it's going to uh, factor in you know the different crises post-crisis uh pre-crisis if they're going to factor in the new 52 what's going to go on with that um but we'll see. We'll see. I'm looking forward to it. Next up in uh, Marvel, most of most of the comic news is Marvel news. I just gotta, I'll, I'll be honest. That's what it is. Uh, first off, we got the announcement for Iron Man 2020. Uh, this was kind of in the works. It seems like with Dan Slott from the moment that he took over the Iron Man book, and the Iron Man 2020 is book is basically going to be replacing the tony stark iron man book and that is due to tony possibly dying in the final issue uh which is going to be coming out in december and then the new iron man iron man 2020 is going to be arno stark tony's younger adopted brother and i don't mean that arno was adopted if you haven't been reading the comics spoilers uh tony was actually adopted and Arno was the original child of uh, Howard 
Stark. I'm, yeah, it's confusing. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But um, what I think is really cool is that back in, I think it was like the mid 80s, like like 83 or 84, uh, they had this storyline called Iron Man 2020, where the Iron Man, and remember, this was in 19, like, we'll say 1984. Uh, in 1984, we had the Iron Man from 2020 jump back over, you know, 20 years to visit the 80s or the present day. And so now that we're officially hitting 2020, I think it's really cool that they are going in and making Iron Man 2020 a thing and making him canon so that it matters when he goes back. I hope they touch back on that. Um, this is going to be written by Dan Slott and Christos Gage with Pete Woods uh, doing art. I'm looking forward to this. I think Arno is a really interesting character, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he does. If you can hear that in the background, that is uh, Churchill. That is our roommate's cat. He is very vocal. He wants attention. Um, but I got to record right now, Churchill. I'm trying to put out the, uh, the content for the listeners. Um, Churchill has no respect for, uh, for artistic pursuits. But that's okay. Uh, <laughs> moving on. So next up, we got the news that Guardians of the Galaxy is relaunching as well. Uh, in January, Guardians of the Galaxy at this point has been written by Donnie Cates uh, for the, since the relaunch in the beginning of 2019. And uh, it looks like his run is going to be ending uh, with issue number 12 in December. And then we're going to be getting an all-new number one with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, written by Al Ewing, with art by Juan Cabal. I'm not super familiar with Juan Cabal's work, but if it's anything like what they have released for the... Um, uh, the cover, I'm looking forward to. The art looks really, really cool. So I'm going to read you the synopsis that was released here, and it says, Once they were a team of misfits. Now they're a family, and they've earned their peace. But the universe is not a peaceful place, and it's only getting worse. The great empires are in turmoil. The rule of law is dead. And amidst the chaos, the gods of Olympus have returned. Harbingers of a new age of war, reborn to burn their mark on the stars themselves. Someone has to guard the galaxy, but who will accept the mission? And will they survive it? So, I'm looking forward to this. The cover reveals... You know, the potential team that could be coming out of this, which from the cover uh, shows Moondragon, Marvel Boy, Nova, Richard Ryder, uh, another character who I'm not super familiar with, and then we have our mainstays, Star-Lord and Rocket. Um, Rocket's also looking real nice in the snazzy Miami Vice looking suit, so... I'm hoping they kind of lean towards some uh, some heist aspects because, you know, heists in space is some of my favorite kinds of storytelling with the Guardians. So we will see what this book does, but I'm looking forward to it. Also relaunching in uh, January, if you were wondering, well, if Donnie Cates isn't doing Guardians of the Galaxy, what is he doing? Well, it was revealed that he is taking over Thor. That is right. After the conclusion of King Thor, Donny Cates will officially be taking up the hammer alongside Nick Klein, and they are going to be relaunching the book with a new number one in January. Let's read the quick synopsis for that here. 
The prince is now a king. All of Asgard lies before Thor, the god of thunder. And after many months of war, the ten realms are finally at peace. But the skies above the realm eternal are never clear for long. The black winter is coming, and the god of the storm will be powerless before it. So first off, really interested, I don't think I've ever heard of Thor being referred to as the god of the storm. So if I'm wrong, if that's been, uh, if he's been called that before, feel free to correct me. But I think that the implications of that are really interesting. And then this cover that they released, they released an initial cover along with the uh, first sketches of Thor's new look. And I'm confused. Uh, I'm interested but I'm confused because Thor has both eyes, no beard, super long hair, and he has both of his arms again. Not only that, not only that, Mjolnir is now just like crackling with energy. So I'm not sure exactly what implications this has, why he looks so different if this is somebody else, maybe Thunderstrike, but... I am curious to see what they do with this character because part of me, after you know the end of the most recent Thor run and then going into uh, King Thor, I, there was a part of me that was like, I guess we don't really need any more Thor books because Jason Aaron kind of filled in the past, the present, and the future, both the beginning, the middle, and the end of Thor's story. So what else is there to tell and who would be willing to take on that kind of mantle of trying to fill in the blanks without uh, stepping on anything that Jason Aaron did. And of course, only Donny Cates would be up to the challenge. But I'm curious. I'm definitely going to be picking up number one just to see what's going on and to hopefully get some answers on this new look. But overall, really, really strong stuff. Donny Cates is killing it right now, so I'm not surprised. Next up, another new book announcement was a new Wolverine title uh, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Adam Kubert and Victor Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich? I mispronounced your name, and I apologize. So uh, this is going to be part of the Dawn of X relaunch with Jonathan Hickman, which kicks off next week. Uh, and I am really excited about this. First off, because Benjamin Percy's writing it. Uh, if you didn't know, Benjamin Percy was the writer for the most recent uh, Wolverine podcast. Uh, these are both The Long Night, and then I believe the other one is... Um, oh, I can't remember the name of the other Wolverine podcast. Let me look that up while I vamp here. But I really, really liked uh, The Long the Long Night. I was a big fan of it. Benjamin Percy really seems to have a unique uh, voice for Logan. And with Richard Armitage voicing him, it's just, oh, it's perfection. Uh, the second one is called Wolverine the Lost Trail. I haven't listened to that yet. I've been waiting for all of the episodes to come out. And I believe they have now. So I'm going to be jumping into them. Really looking forward to it. And Benjamin Percy... It looks like he has a story to tell when it comes to Wolverine. Um, let me see if there is a uh, synopsis. Da, 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 da. Um, not really. From what I can see, it doesn't look like uh, there is one. But I will read the statement that uh, Percy said. He said, and I quote, We all have that character. 
the one we love more than any other, the one we treasure in books and movies and maybe memorialize with a t-shirt or tattoo, the one we relate to as a cracked mirror version of ourselves. For me, as a growly, grumpy, hairy, smelly, muscled, flannel-clad, whiskey-swilling loner who lives in the woods of the frozen north, it's Logan. And though this might sound corny, it also feels right to say that writing Wolverine is a dream come true, a childhood fantasy realized. No kidding, bub. So I'm excited. He seems really jazzed and psyched to take this on. I'm a big fan of Kubert's art as well, so that's going to be really exciting. And putting them together is a recipe for greatness. And that title is going to be out in February, which sucks because we have to wait so long. But gives you time to listen to both uh, The Long Night as well as The Lost Trail, and then you can get into it. And then finally, two last pieces here. First off, we got more information on Marvel Incoming. This is the um, the mystery title that's been brewing for a while. We don't know anything about it, uh, <laughs> uh, but we did get some info for New York Comic Con, uh, as well as a cover, which is kind of dark. Uh, the cover is anyway, and it's implying that someone gets murdered. Um, so I'm looking into the article, which uh, was put out by Hollywood Reporter. Going to cite my sources. But it is going to be an anthology release, and it is uh, kind of similar to uh, Marvel 1000, Marvel 1001. Um, it's going to have contributions from a number of different creators, Dan Slott, Chip Zdarsky, Kelly Thompson, Al Ewing, all of those folks, as well as more. Um, it looks like the thread connecting the different elements is going to be, quote, a mysterious murder which brings together the heroes of the Marvel Universe in the search for a killer. Um, I'm really interested because this is going to be a one-issue story. This is just going to be a packed, um, as far as I know, jumbo size uh, issue that is going to be a big old murder mystery in hopefully in the style of like a broad church or something like that so i'm excited it's described as the closing chapter to marvel's 80th year and something that will connect the dots of everything that happened in 2019 and propel the narrative into the year that is to come um i'm stoked i'm really curious what's going to happen uh it does look like we got an official release date for it as well it's going to be released December 26th, so the day after Christmas. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Murder is never a good thing, of course, but I'm really interested in seeing what they do with it, and I hope it's not... I hope the person they don't kill is somebody who we all love, like a Janet Van Dyne or someone like that, but that does sound like the kind of gut punch that would force the entire uh, Marvel community to come together, but we'll see. Finally, we have the return of the Marvel The End one-shots. Uh, back in, God, this had to be, what, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, Marvel released The End, which was basically uh, very, very far in the future stories of different characters like the Hulk, X-Men, uh, what have you. And it looks like they're finally coming back, so I'm excited. Uh, looking forward to seeing what these are. We got official... Uh, confirmations, official covers, creative teams, and synopses of each. So we're going to go through them one by one, starting off with Venom, The End. This is being written by Adam Warren with art by Chumba. 
don't know who Chamba is, but if he's got a you know one word name like Cher or Prince, I think that's pretty cool. So uh, here's the synopsis for Venom: The End. The alien symbiote who bonded with Eddie Brock has been through a lot, but not nearly as much as he has coming. In a tale that literally spans over a trillion years, Venom travels the lengths of space and time as the last defender of life in the universe. So that's probably going to be a cosmic-y, cosmic-y one. Looking forward to that. Next up, we have Deadpool, The End, uh, written by Joe Kelly with art by Mike Hawthorne. Big fan of Mike Hawthorne's art. You can check him out regularly as the artist for Superior Spider-Man. So let's jump into the synopsis for Deadpool, The End. Wade Wilson may seem like he is unkillable, though there is actually more than one way to put an end to him. But don't take our word for it. So, I'm not sure if this is going to be an actual ending for him. The cover showcases a bunch of different uh, Deadpools kind of put together like a uh, paper daisy chain thing. So, we'll see. We'll see if they actually succeed in killing him. One of the ones I'm really excited about is Captain America The End. And what's really interesting is that a lot of these show... um, much older versions of these characters that are included in all of these. Cap looks like Cap. Cap looks like Cap still, and he's busting through a red skull in the cover, so we will see. It is written and uh, drawn by Eric Larson, and the synopsis goes a little bit like this. The final Sentinel of Liberty story arrives as Steve Rogers fights for survival in a post-apocalyptic wasteland populated by hordes of red skulls. The legendary Eric Larson returns to Marvel for an oversized last tale of Simon and Kirby's American Hero. So it kind of sounds like there's going to be like a plague, like a red skull zombie apocalypse, and that Cap is going to be the only one left standing. Um, That's interesting, but um, we'll just have to see. And then next up, we have Captain Marvel, The End, written by Kelly Thompson with art by Georges Ginti. I definitely mispronounced your name, and I apologize. Synopsis goes something like this. Fifty years ago, Carol Danvers went into the deepest reaches of the cosmos to spread peace and justice, and she hasn't seen a familiar face since. Whatever happened to the planet she once called home? So it looks like this is going to be an interesting story. Um, Carol going off into the universe for five years and coming back to see how the world has changed without her. And uh, the cover is gorgeous. It's showing off her binary form, and it's really, really cool. So that's going to be good. Uh, Next up, we have Miles Morales' Spider-Man The End, uh, written by Saladin Ahmed with art by Damian Scott. Uh, Looks cool. Looks really good. Definitely some influences on the cover, at least, from Into the Spider-Verse. So let's jump into the synopsis. Humanity makes its last stand in the only place strong enough to survive. Brooklyn. Former Spider-Man Miles Morales leads the last bastion of civilization into the future. So that sounds interesting. Um, I am interested in the former Spider-Man aspect. His costume kind of looks similar to the costume he was wearing in the final issue of uh, Chip Zdarsky's Spider-Man Life Story. No telling if there's going to be any kind of connection there, but it'd be cool if it did. And then finally, the one I'm probably the most excited about, 
uh, is Doctor Strange, the end. The cover's gorgeous, it looks fantastic, and um, let's jump into the synopsis. Written by Leah Williams and with art by Felipe Andrade, or Philippe Andrade, mispronounced your name, and I apologize. It says, The master of mysticism goes on his final journey. The Sorcerer Supreme makes his final journey through a cyberpunk sprawl that forgot about magic. So, I'm a big fan of cyberpunk. Um, I love that aspect uh, when it's used in storytelling, when it's used well in storytelling. And having old man Stephen Strange with his archaic magic going up against cyberpunk sounds really, really cool. So I'm definitely going to be looking at this one as my top pick for that. And that does it for the news this week. Like I said, a lot of stuff. Uh, we are already... Look at this. We're already 40 minutes in, and we are just getting into the main meat, the entree, the main course, if you will, of the podcast, which is a full spoiler-filled review of The Joker. Let's go ahead, without any further ado, uh, dive into this review. Once again, real quick, spoiler warning. If you haven't seen the film, pause this, go watch it, come back, we'll discuss. But for those of you who have seen it, Let's dive into a spoiler review of Joker. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? So I'm going to start off this review with just a blanket statement, a tagline, if you will. Um, you could take it either way. I have never in my entire life watching films, cartoons, TV, whatever, I have never been as consistently uncomfortable over a sustained, prolonged period as I have for the two hours of Joker, ever. Now, that isn't a bad thing, because this film does everything that it can to shock and get a rise out of its audience, and I will tell you that it was an incredibly unique uh, viewing experience watching this film. This is, of course, um, just... I mean, in a way expected, I guess, just because it's a film about a homicidal clown in a year where we've been getting lots of films about homicidal clowns. But this was different. This, wa this wasn't like a, oh, it's, you know, this ethereal force that's chasing these kids who have now become adults, or this creepy clown that is some kind of ghost or demon following people around. This was uncomfortable to me because of how raw, how real, and how grounded this film felt. And I know it's, you know, it's a DC film. It should be dark and gritty and grounded in reality. But this film, I would say even more so, and I realize saying this, how uh, I'm going to piss some people off. This film does... Gotham City in a realistic and gritty setting 
better than Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. I know it's blasphemy saying that, but it's true because this film really made this city, Gotham City, and all of its inhabitants feel like they could be this city. It could be Los Angeles. It could be Chicago. It could be New York. A lot of it is based off of New York, which is the inspiration for the original Gotham City in the comics. But this was so uncomfortable because you could see how the real world affected the narrative here. This is not a story that is so out of the realm of possibility that you're able to shut your brain off and kind of just enjoy the show. This is a film that makes you uncomfortable because you know people like the people who are in this film. You know neighborhoods that they showcase in this film. You've heard or you've experienced some of the uh, narrative beats and the plot that happens in this film because it's our world. It's based on our society today. And I don't know whether that's like a positive or a negative thing. Um, I've only seen Joker once at this point. And of course, as previously stated, this is going to be full of spoilers, so just be aware of that. But this really um, had me thinking a lot after leaving the theater. It was just... I haven't had an experience like that in a really long time when it comes to watching film. And I think that's one of the things that is really exciting about where DC is going with their films now. Uh, if this film, if Joker is any indication on what DC and Warner Brothers are looking to do with their comic book films going forward, having both a, I would say, a... Um, a cooperation between studio and directors while also giving the director full reins on what to do with his project, we might be in store for a really good uh, few years coming up when it comes to DC Comics and Warner Brothers uh, distributing those films. So that's just my overall thoughts, spoiler-free. Um, I've got my notes here. We're going to go through everything, but I was just... I was blown away. I was really blown away by this film, both uh, positively and negatively, I will say, because it's not a perfect film. It definitely is not. A lot of people are saying, you know, this is the greatest comic book film of all time. This is better than this film. This is better than that film. I don't want to get into that conversation because I feel like it's a moot point really, to talk about that kind of thing when you're looking at something that's as subjective as film is. But I will say this really was a breath of smoggy, uh, deep city air in a otherwise kind of samey superhero landscape. A lot of popular films that I love are pretty commonly and regularly criticized for being very samey, being uh, very homogenized. And I will say, for better or for worse, this film is unlike any other comic book film that we've gotten. Uh, and I think that takes a lot from the inspirations for this film. We're talking Taxi Driver. We're talking King of Comedy. These Scorsese films that uh, couldn't have 
we couldn't have gotten a more perfect time for a film inspired by Martin Scorsese as the same week that Martin Scorsese says comic book films are not cinema, just trashing the entire comic book film genre. I think that's incredible irony. But I just, I'm fascinated by this film, and I've got my notes here, we're going to talk about it, but the... the first thing in my notes and the thing that I, I put it out on Twitter, I you know was talking to people afterwards, texting friends. All I could say was, wow. Wow, wow, wow. This film was just a, a ride. It really, really is. Um, some more general thoughts before I dive straight into the notes. Uh, this is kind of a slow burn film. The first, I would say, half an hour takes a little bit to get going, but once you get to a certain point, and we will talk about it, uh, the film just starts to rev, and the tension and the momentum builds and builds and builds and builds and builds until the last 20 minutes is just pure joker, just as pure an adaptation of that character as I've ever seen, ever. So... Let's dive into my notes. In my first notes, of course, we got to talk about Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix was just a visionary when it comes to this role. Uh, We've gotten a lot of um, sociopolitical diatribe in the media, in, you know, talks for interviews and all this stuff on whether this film is... Uh, too dark, whether it's too disturbing, whether it's this or that, inciting violence, all that stuff. I've talked about this in a previous episode where I kind of think that if you identify with the Joker in this film, there might be something wrong with you. There's no, you know, I'm not trying to throw shade at anybody, but it's like this film properly showcases someone who suffers from mental health issues and it really shows how far someone like that can be pushed when they don't have um, a nurturing environment or a proper support system to help them get back on their feet and Joaquin Phoenix oh my god is an absolute force in this film I don't like saying that word because it sounds really uh, snooty and really like Oh, yes, his performance was a tour de force here. But, like, he was incredible. Really, truly incredible. Showing all kinds of different emotions, going through different beats, really just kind of traipsing his way, whether it was, you know, shoulders slumped, trying to just get through the day, or him being super flamboyant and dancing down the stairs, like... He was absolutely the focal point and the linchpin for this entire film. If he didn't work, this film wouldn't work. And I am really happy to say that it works and that he really delivers a performance that I I feel weird saying this, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Um, it feels Oscar-worthy. It really does. And I know every year it's like, oh man, a new comic book film comes out, so Eric must love it. And I get that. Like, I I come from a time back in my day where if you liked comic books and you liked superheroes, you were bullied for it and you were picked on. 
And so I'm living in this age, this renaissance of comic book and superhero media where it's mainstream to know what Flashpoint is. It's mainstream to understand that there is a multiverse. It's mainstream to know what the Infinity Gauntlet is. Like, we're in a time that I would have killed for when I was a kid. And I try to go to every single comic book movie with an open mind because I recognize that we are in a time that may not last forever. You know, a lot of people in the last, you know, five, ten years have said that eventually the superhero genre is going to go the way of the Western. And we don't know when that's going to happen. We don't know when this bubble is going to burst. So I'm just trying to enjoy every single bit of it. Does that mean that I unabashedly love every single comic book film that comes out? No, absolutely not. There are films that I don't enjoy when it comes to those comic book films. But this one, I will say, is really good. It's really good for all of the right and wrong reasons. It perfectly depicts someone who has mental instability living in a society that doesn't give a shit about him and it shows you know what the consequence of that is and it sucks and if anything else this film is really supposed to just my interpretation my opinion this really is trying to tell the audience look like People need help, and if they need help, you should help them. But anyway, um, Joaquin Phoenix is so good in this film. He really does a fantastic job showing the journey from mild-mannered, you know, mentally unstable Arthur Fleck into the purest form of the Joker character. And... I think part of that really comes down to the laugh. I have it specifically in my notes. I want to talk about the laugh because the laugh that he comes up with for his version of the Joker is incredible. Um, first off, because it organically comes from his character. It's not put on. It's not, you know, oh, let me find a Joker laugh. It's It, it stems from his laugh being a condition like a medical condition that he has and this is a real condition i've looked this up this is a real condition where there is some kind of um imbalance in your in your um i guess your uh chemical makeup where you laugh uncontrollably even when the situation doesn't uh, warrant it like some people it comes out when they're stressed when some people it comes out when they um are confronted in any way like any kind of like violent way or verbal way like this is something that really happens to people i i looked up you know a couple of videos on youtube of people who go through this and it is sad but also like it's a perfect way to get that laugh into that character before he even becomes the Joker. There are moments in this film where Arthur Fleck is faced with a situation where he just starts laughing and he can't help it. He physically can't stop himself to the point that, you know, he'll get halfway through his, you know, big laugh and he starts to cough because he's trying so hard not to laugh and it's drying at his throat. And so almost every single laugh that he has in this film 
ends with him coughing because his throat is so sore because he can't help it. He even has little laminated cards that he gives out to people to let them know, hey, I have this neurological condition. Please don't take anything the wrong way. And I think that's fascinating. And the way that people respond to it is really just heartbreaking. There's that scene. We've seen it in the trailers where, you know, Arthur is you know, making funny faces at this kid who's laughing and the kid's mom is like, will you stop bothering my child? And he's just like, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to. She's like, well, just stop it. And then he just starts laughing. And, you know, it's so uncomfortable and so awkward. And you cringe every time he laughs in a situation where he's not supposed to. But it's really fascinating and intriguing to watch. Um, This carries through all the way to, you know, him finding about, finding out about Thomas Wayne possibly being his father. He goes and tries to confront him, not, you know, wanting to ask for money, not trying to get any kind of handout, but just talking to him saying, like, I just want some compassion. And that's an incredible scene between uh, Arthur and Thomas in the bathroom. That sounds weird, but if you've watched the film, you know what I'm talking about, where Arthur just kind of lets loose on him, where he's like, I don't want money. I just want people to care. I want you to give some kind of human compassion. Why is it so hard for everyone to just be kind to each other? And it's a real question, and it's a real quandary that faces our society today. And I thought that was really moving. And really powerful. Um, of course, after finding out that Thomas Wayne possibly isn't his father and that his mental illness n- might not be because of, you know, a genetic thing, it might be because of abuse from his childhood. It's really, this film has a lot of layers, a lot of different interpretations. I've talked to a couple people who have wildly different interpretations of some of the events of this film than I do. And I think that really feeds into the spirit of the Joker himself. We're going to talk about the Joker himself later on in this list, but I thought Joaquin Phoenix really went as far as he could go with this character. And saying that, he also left some in the tank to make you want to see more of him. Uh, The very final scene, I think, really, for me, just translates everything about that character that I identify with and not in a way that's like oh I see myself in that character it's like that's how I identify that character the things that he does in these final 20 minutes which again we're going to talk about but Walking Phoenix just as a whole he lost I think he was like 50 some odd pounds to look all uh, emaciated and skeletal in some scenes that he does in this film and you can tell he put the work in you can tell he didn't come at this as just like a oh it's a comic book movie i don't have to try here and it really shows in his performance uh and it kind of makes me happy that we didn't get him as Doctor Strange. For those of you you who don't know, he was in talks with Disney and Marvel years back to play Doctor Strange in the MCU, and he ultimately passed on it, and so that role later went to Benedict Cumberbatch. But what a different world we would be living in right now when it comes to superhero media if Joaquin Phoenix had decided to be Stephen Strange, and we may never have gotten this Joker movie. So... Overall, Walking Phoenix, incredible, incredible work. Even some of the more subtle stuff, like his um, 
his mannerisms when you don't really know what's real when he's being you know observing the uh the guy wearing the clown mask and the taxi is one of my favorite shots because you see this moment where he feels important he feels like he inspired something uh the scene the final uh session that he has with his first therapist where he just kind of again like lets loose on her like you don't listen to me you don't understand you don't even try to help me i just come in here every week you ask me the same questions and then we just move on like nothing ever happened it's really really good and gripping stuff um the uh the reveal i guess we'll talk about it here the reveal where we find out that this romance that he's had this seemingly impossible romance that he has with Zazie Beetz character uh, from down the hall is just a complete delusion is both um, jaw-dropping and horrifying and weirdly uh, satisfying in that way as well because as soon as like she came into the film of course Zazie Beetz phenomenal actress she's incredible and she does a great job with what little she's given here um they have that weird like interaction in the elevator and then later on he stalks her and then like at the end of the day she just comes to him and she's just like hey are you stalking me today okay well you know that's fine and i was just like no one would react that way and in my mind i was like that's weird but i guess maybe like this is the perfect person that arthur needs and that maybe by losing this person is what's going to cause him to snap uh if you remember back in the original uh killing joke that was a big thing for him in his supposed backstory remember never confirmed by the end of that story um that he had a wife who was pregnant and she died and that's what started him off on his one bad day and so i thought maybe her dying is gonna be what happens here but it was so much worse it was so much worse because you get all these scenes of them together she comes to his comedy show they go out they're you know having a really great romantic connection and at a certain point like he finds out all this stuff about his mom and you know she's been lying to him for his whole life and all this stuff and he shows up in Zazie Beat's apartment uh, first of all, her door was unlocked, which you're in Gotham City. Come on. I don't care if you feel safe in your building or what. Like, you should never leave your door unlocked. Um, but he goes and he's sitting there and we think as an audience, oh, he's, you know, he's going there. They're going to have a really long heart-to-heart conversation. But she comes in there and she's shocked to see him. And that was really jarring. And I'm like, whoa, what's happening here? Uh, maybe she just doesn't recognize him because he has, like, his hood up and everything. But you find out that all of the interactions that they had after that initial meeting in the elevator were all in his head. It was just all in his head. He had imagined all of that, that she was there. It was this psychosis and this delusion that he had that created this entire relationship that never happened. And Zazie Beetz's acting in this is just phenomenal. She's so good because she's like, I have a daughter. Please go. You're from down the hall. I know you're in the wrong apartment. And it's heartbreaking because the way that he looks at her and the way that it kind of jumps into the next scene, um, 
we don't know if she died or not. We don't know if he killed her. We don't know what happened. We do see that like sirens are going off like near the building af- immediately after this scene, but we don't ever get any kind of answer as to what happened to her. And that's chilling to me. And it was really, really uh, terrifying in the theater watching this film. Um, also, the moment that he... Uh, Again, we're dealing with, like, possible delusion. Uh, There's a moment where he gets, you know, jumped by these kids very early on in the film. They break the sign, they steal the sign, whatever. And then he goes to his boss, who's like, you know, you stole the sign, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, why would I steal a sign? And the guy goes, I don't don't know. Why does anybody do anything? And it's like, this guy is so... um, so far away removed from caring about how Arthur feels or even believing him that it's like you almost wonder afterwards like did that happen did some of the things in this film happen and we're going to talk about that too like all of the possibilities the theories and whatnot but I was just blown away by all of Joaquin Phoenix's acting here when he first kills the uh, the three guys in the train in the subway was just oh just sends shivers it's chilling and then he you know runs away and he goes into this bathroom this like park bathroom and then he just starts dancing because it's like the most control he's ever felt in his entire life um, there's the moment where his buddy, or who he thought was his friend, you know, gives him a gun, and then later on, you know, when Arthur's just like, oh, by the way, it's his gun, and he's like, you're talking out of your ass, get out of here. It's like, did that happen? Did he imagine that? Like, so it's so interesting, the layers that uh, Joaquin Phoenix put into this film, and into this portrayal of uh, Arthur Fleck, so I really, really liked it. Uh, moving on to the next point, speaking of, like, psychosis and did things happen did they not happen i really appreciated the insight into psychosis and mental health in this film because they put a big spotlight on that uh we do get to see arkham asylum which is actually in this film arkham state hospital and i think changing the name from arkham asylum to arkham hospital has so many genius connotations to it that are really uh, subversive and really subtle in that way. Even just hearing the names Arkham Asylum versus Arkham Hospital, uh, it changes the whole uh, texture of how you look at that title. Arkham Asylum, oh, this is for crazy people. This is for insane criminals. Arkham Hospital, this is a place of healing. This is a place for people to get help. And it really, I think, changes the... uh, the the makeup of this film and of that as a set piece um i really liked how like stark white everything is in arkham uh in arkham hospital and that really i think helps to sell the fact that that's the only place that really feels black and white Everything else, everywhere else, is just varying shades of gray, and I really appreciated that. But talking about mental health here, um, I was really taken aback by how much they put into it. Not just, you know, the stuff that Arthur was suffering from, but also how real-world politics, real-world money 
goes into how that changes mental health and the treatment of mental health. Uh, we find out fairly early on as well that um, Arthur is going to see this therapist as part of a city program, and that he or that they are their funding's getting cut. So not only is he not going to be able to have sessions anymore, but they're also taking away his medication. He asks, you know, how do I get my meds? And the completely dismissive therapist is just like, I don't know, whatever. And you see that that's kind of the first domino that goes. And it really puts uh, weight to how much mental health can affect all of us in our day-to-day and how much the lack of professional help when it comes to mental health can affect someone who is dealing with stuff that we might not even know about. So I liked that there was this weird disconnect with his therapist because I have, in getting too into detail in my own life, of course, um, I have gone to therapy. I have found it both really frustrating as well as really insightful and really helpful. Uh, I've gone to therapy for two different periods in my life. Uh, One was not helpful at all, and I completely felt in that moment when his therapist is just like giving him like, yeah, whatever, I don't care about what you're here for, we're just, this is our time, I'm going to prescribe you more things, and then I'm just not going to listen to you. Uh, But luckily, the other period of time that I was going through therapy was very helpful. And so if you have ever thought about therapy if you have ever thought about going to seek help for that kind of thing do it uh it is very helpful especially if you have someone who genuinely uh cares (laughs) i know that sounds like it should be a prerequisite but it isn't always so do your research find somebody who is genuinely committed to helping you with what you need help with and then go because you will be surprised how much it helps you uh, this has been a PSA from mental health in uh, in the world. But it really, I thought that gov- the government cut- cutting funding to not just his therapy sessions, but also his medication being the initial domino that falls really is powerful and really speaks to mental health in this, in today's world. Uh, the idea that Arthur's mother, Penny, really had to deal with other psychosis and that even though you know we have adoption papers and all this stuff that if he really is her son then it could be a case of like that um that mental instability was passed down along with the abuse that Arthur suffered from Penny's boyfriend when uh, she was younger I think it's fascinating I think it really shines a light on trying to figure out you know what's real in this film and what's not real in this film so i really appreciated it and i loved seeing how that affected people in the society because it really showed not just the effects that it had in the um in the immediate vicinity we're talking just penny talking just arthur it also showed how much it affected the society of gotham Uh, It really showed the disparity between the haves and the have-nots, and it showed that, just as the Joker has said in the past in comics, um, all it takes is one bad day, and it really does for anybody. But I also think that it also showed really clearly that 
Arthur is not somebody who should be praised for the things that he does. I saw a review somewhere where someone was like, you know, in this film, as opposed to other interpretations, the Joker is the hero and is a Robin Hood type figure that, you know, goes after the rich and wealthy of Gotham. And that is so wrong on so many levels. Um, the Joker is not the hero here. He may be the protagonist, but he's not a hero. And this film did a really good job at showing you that Arthur's mental state feeds into this idea that he, in a way, never grew up or knew how to deal with the blows that would come with life. Because life is going to hit you a lot and hard and it's your responsibility to grow from it and to get back up and it with the idea of um, mental health and vigilantism as themes in the film it did a really good job at showing you this is not a, a hero's journey this is a cautionary tale and while you want things to get better for Arthur, the way that he goes about quote-unquote making things better is not the right way to do it, and you don't want him to succeed, even if you feel sorry for him. And I thought that was really well done in this film, and Todd Phillips did a great job uh, doing that. I'm just dropping my pen and stuff while I'm going through my notes here. And speaking of, you know, the society that they were in, speaking of the haves and the have-nots, I loved Gotham City in this film. I loved Gotham City uh, because it did the one thing that I've never really felt um, Batman films do very well, at least not like the more uh, recent ones, and I will include Christopher Nolan's films in that as well, is that Gotham City should feel like its own character. And in this film, Gotham City feels like its own character. That's what's so fascinating about Gotham in the comics. Uh, that's what draws people to that. That's what gives it character and sets it apart from cities like Star City, uh, Metropolis, Central City, Keystone City, like Gotham City is its own character and it should be treated as such. Every single street should feel like there's a story happening and that's what really felt like was going on here in this film and I really enjoyed it. Uh, Gotham City felt like its own supporting character showing the not just the decay of the society that Arthur was living in but also how it affects the inhabitants of that city. Uh, it's very heavily implied that this is taking place in the very early 80s, which I liked. Uh, you get to see a grungy, dirty, gritty city. There's trash bags, you know, piled up on the sides of streets and the sides of buildings. Everything is grimy and has uh, graffiti everywhere. And this city is exactly the kind of city you would see a guy running around in a bat suit at night beating up criminals inhabiting. This is a city that you can absolutely see Arthur Fleck just becoming the Joker in. This is a city that you can really step inside and feel like you understand. You get it. You get why people are afraid of the city. You get why the city has churned out 
Batman's entire rogues gallery. And you really understand why the city has, in a sense, you know, forced Bruce Wayne to become Batman. And I really liked that here. Um, all of the rioting at the end of the film, which was great, felt like Gotham City. It felt like running through like the Arkham games, especially like an Arkham City or an Arkham Asylum, where you've got criminals roaming the streets. You know, the cops are ill-equipped to handle them. Um, you also get to see how the media just affects everything too so like when joker kills those three uh business douchebags who worked for um wayne enterprises these guys were awful people these guys were really awful people but as soon as they're killed everyone's like oh you know these poor upstanding citizens were brutally killed and it's like Oh my god, <laughs> like, of course there's, like, a disparity here. Of course, you know, people are feeling, you know, separated from the upper class to the lower class because the media doesn't care about people who are less fortunate. People only care about, you know, people who make money or people who have fame, and that's, again, a really great mirror reflection of today's society so i really enjoyed that uh gotham city when it came to like its elite when it came to even just going street by street from scene to scene watching arthur walk through the city was fascinating because you can take any of just the montage scenes where he's just walking through the city freeze frame it and you can find something happening and that's what you want in a story that involves a city like Gotham City. And that city is, in effect, ruled by the Waynes, who are my next point. Love that segue. Smoothest segue I've ever done. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the Waynes here are fascinating. Uh, specifically Thomas Wayne, because he gets the most time here. Um, he is so interesting to me, because there was a lot of rumor and speculation going into the film that he was going to be set up as this kind of Donald Trump character. And while I can see where people would get that idea from, I don't think that's an accurate description. If you watch the film, you'll see it's not at all that. Uh, Thomas Wayne, I think, is a total dick in this film. He really is. And we're not talking about Grayson. Like, Thomas Wayne is an absolute asshole to many many people including arthur fleck the confrontation that they have in the bathroom where uh, arthur is unable to stop laughing because of his medical condition and thomas just clocks him right in the face uh was actually like really jarring and surprising i gasped because i i guess i wasn't expecting it uh, because we always have these, you know, it's the same thing that we talk about with, like, Uncle Ben or Ma and Pa Kent. We look at Thomas and Martha Wayne as these, like, paragons of virtue who were taken before their time. And you have to kind of look past that and see that these were real people. Uh, Martha Wayne is giving, given absolutely nothing in this film. And it's a shame, but I understand because she's not really uh, a fixture in the story. But she feels almost like collateral damage in this film and uh when the eventual murder of the waynes does happen you don't really understand why martha would be killed you would only really understand why thomas would be killed and the fact that she is killed you feel bad about i mean you should feel bad regardless about people dying but like 
she seems like an innocent bystander just like Bruce was to Thomas being kind of a raging asshole in this film. Uh, but you do kind of get where he's coming from as well. Like if one interpretation of the film is to be believed, you know, this crazy girl who used to work for him, you know, obsessed about him and sent him letters every single day about, I had your baby, you need to take care of us. Um, I could I could absolutely understand. And then that, you know, 30 some odd man, you know, showing up at my house one day and putting his hands on my kid, I would probably react the same way, which is really interesting and gives you just so many different perspectives on these characters. Uh, Bruce Wayne has a little bit here, not a whole lot to do, but I will say I loved the scene that he gets with Joaquin Phoenix, where Arthur Fleck shows up and, you know, has his head over the, uh, the little hedges. And it's still, it's, kind of it's haunting because we get all of these um all of these stories nowadays about you know child abductions and kidnappings and stuff and that scene the opening to that scene is straight up stranger danger there is no other way to um translate that other than arthur was being a total creep and it's kind of expected that people would react a certain way but i loved when bruce first saw him he's in the treehouse and so he goes to uh i guess meet him at the gate and to get out of his treehouse he slides down a pole just echoing a it's just like a ghost of the future um I loved that. And it's just really tiny, really tiny, just sliding down the bat pole to go, you know, off on a new adventure into the bat cave. But I really enjoyed that. And this film is chock full of callbacks to Joker stories and Batman stories from throughout the ages. And I really appreciated that. But the thing that got me when it comes to the Waynes, uh, the thing that really I think I was more excited about than I thought I would be excited about um, was Alfred. I didn't know for some reason it didn't like occur to me that Alfred would show up in this movie. And of course it makes sense that he would. But the moment that he just showed up on screen to like pull uh, Bruce away from Arthur, I actually was like, oh, Alfred, like in the theater and I had to be shushed. But it was so funny. And it really, again, reminded me that this is still a comic book movie. These characters do exist in this film. And I think if you can take a comic book movie and kind of make me forget that it is living in a world that has other comic book characters in it, I think you've you've done something special. So I really, I loved that. And then when ultimately they do, the Waynes do get gunned down in the alley, I loved how kind of senseless it was. Because while these riots are going on, of course, uh, Bruce, Martha, and Thomas are at the theater watching. And I could not believe this because I'm looking and I might be remembering this wrong. Um, if I'm wrong, please correct me. On the marquee, you know, originally in Batman comics, they were seeing Mark of Zorro and then everything happened. But on the marquee in this Joker film, it says Zorro the Gay Blade. And I don't know if that's just like a, a like it's like a period thing. It's like a I don't know if it's just like a time period thing that I'm just not understanding, or if this was you know something else. But I was just kind of thrown off by that. 
Because, of course, you see the Waynes leaving a theater, I'm going to look at the surroundings. I'm going to look for the Monarch Theater. I'm going to look for Crime Alley. And so I, that just threw me off. But all the Waynes, like, leave, and they try to go down an alley to get away from the riots. And you see this masked person just follow them. And I loved this. I loved this because this has this has always been the thing. I love the idea that Bruce's parents were gunned down in an alleyway. I know that sounds really weird, but I love the idea that Bruce never found out who that was, never brought his parents' killer to justice. And that's what separates him from the Robins later on, that he's able to help them get justice so that they can live their lives better than he did. And I, while I understand the concept of Joe Chill and having, you know, a face to this to be like, this is what is the man who killed Bruce's parents. I love the story concept that Bruce never knows. And that's really, in essence, why he continues his war in this subtle uh, need to find that man, to find the criminal who killed his parents, because he doesn't know. And I love that they did that in this film. You never see the face of this guy. He's wearing one of the clown masks, and he guns down Thomas and Martha in the alleyway and just leaves. We don't get any... Um, further backstory in this character. We never see him before or after the events of the Wayne murders, but that's just what happens. And I love that. It really felt like a true blue uh, Batman origin. So I liked that. Uh, going off on some other stuff, we're going to talk about De Niro. I have to talk about De Niro here. I thought this was the thing. I was really worried. Because when you bring in a guy like De Niro, he's going to do either one of two things, depending on the director, depending on the script, depending on the subject matter. Uh, De Niro is either going to bring a level of professionalism and a level of uh, prestige to this role that he's going to pour his heart and soul into, or he's going to phone it in. And it's been one of those two things from uh, the last, I would say, you know, 10... 20 years um i was really intrigued to see what he was going to do here especially because looking at some of the uh influences on this film we're talking taxi driver we're talking king of comedy which he was the main character in both of those films having de niro come in and play this character who is essentially you know what king of comedy that film was about was him you know getting his own show having a certain amount of fame and all that stuff um i was fascinated to see if he was gonna phone it in here or if he was gonna give you know a scorsese performance and i am pretty happy to say that he doesn't phone it in here he really feels like a fleshed out character you really feel that he is also an awful person and that's just i guess the the story of the film really is just uh, Gotham City is full of awful people and there aren't a whole lot of exceptions. And uh, unfortunately, um, De Niro's Murray Franklin is, or Franklin Murray, it's something like that, um, is not an exception to this rule. Uh, you see him mock Arthur Flex stand up on his show and then later on like he's the one who gives Arthur the Joker name he's like check out this Joker and later on when Arthur's getting ready to go on to the show he's like can you call me Joker and 
both uh, the the producer who is wonderfully played by Mark Maron. I really would have liked to get more of him in this film because I love I love that actor. Um, both of them are like why, and Arthur is just like you called me Joker when you were talking about my stand up, and De Niro's character doesn't remember it doesn't even remember just tearing this guy down. And I thought that was fascinating. I thought it was incredible. Um, really, really good stuff. And he, you know, has this great moment where he kind of drops the uh, Fallon or the Kimmel facade when Joker reveals that he killed the guys on the subway. And you really see a shift in him. You see this guy who's kind of dropping the showman facade and being like, you killed these people. This isn't funny. Like, this isn't like... We're not looking at this as some kind of comedy here. This is an absolute tragedy, and you are making a joke out of it, and I really liked it. And it, you know, it really, for me, showed that, in essence, like, even though all of the people in Gotham are awful, there are some people who don't understand how much they affect other people. And I thought that was a really cool theme to have in this as well. And talking about that theme, let's that, let's talk about that final scene where Joker does go on the show. He's talking to Franklin. I loved that this is, in certain aspects, like a one-to-one uh comparison like a one-to-one adaptation of the dark knight returns when joker goes on the talk show and he goes over he kisses the doctor loved it um later on in the comic he kisses her and she gets jokerized um and dies but in this one he you know he kisses her he's talking and he's like you see him sitting on the couch and he's taking everything in and you know it was set up earlier in the film that this is where he's going to kill himself he is just going to kill himself here on national television and that's his goal and so we're all expecting it so he goes up and he's like sitting there and he's looking at the audience he's like this is exactly how i thought this would be it's exactly how i expected this to look and it's just fascinating and terrifying and so um he gets ready to tell his knock knock joke which is going to be like knock knock and he just go takes the gun out blows his brains out and he goes to flip through his book and he sees this line that he wrote into his in his journal much earlier on the film where it says i think something like i hope my death makes more sense than my life and there's this pause where you see the gears turning And you see his motivation shift and change. And so he's, you know, he admits to the killings. Everyone's freaking out. Franklin is just like, or Murray, Franklin Murray or whatever, is like going into him, just like digging into him like you're a sick man. And Joker delivers this monologue, again, kind of echoing the things that he's talked about with both the therapist and with Thomas Wayne earlier in the film, where it's like you talk about these three guys that I killed like they were saints because they had money, but if I died in a ditch, you would have walked right over me. Like, And it's really interesting, this kind of like pointed look at today's disparity between, again, the haves and the have-nots. And listening to this monologue is very Joker, very, um, I would say, uh, 
social justice. I know that's a weird term to say, and it you know it's a very triggering term, but it's like this guy has nothing left to lose, and so he's just laying it all on the table. And he says his, uh, you know, what do you get when you put you know a mentally unstable person with a society who doesn't care about him or something like that? And he says you get what you deserve, and he blah just shoots De Niro right in the head, and I gasped i gasped i was not prepared for it um even though i should have been i really should have been because in the comic that this is a that this scene is a direct rip from he kills everyone in the both on stage at the talk show and in the audience he kills them all but him shooting de niro in the head was wow really just switches the whole thing into the next gear and it really shows this transformation. He has defined himself. Arthur Fleck has died, and he is now the Joker. So let's talk about the Joker. We're going to talk about all the stuff. Um, first question that I know that I have to I have to address: Did I like this version of the Joker? Yes. Though I will put a an asterisk, a caveat on there in saying that. I don't think he becomes the Joker really until, for me, the the moments that he was the Joker were very far or few between. There's a hint of that pure version of the Joker that I see in the scene with um, his old work buddies. And then he really, to me, doesn't become the Joker, and I'm using air quotes for podcast listeners, um, until he stands up on the cop car. So backtracking to that moment uh, first with the scene with him and his old work buddies, they come to check on him after his mother died, after he smothered her, and I think that was really the moment where Arthur Fleck died and this um, incubation process he went into a cocoon, and then he bursts out as the Joker out of this cop car. But this moment where he is, he's got the white face paint on, he's getting ready to go on the show, and these ex-co-workers show up, one of whom gave him the gun, or may have not given him the gun, depending on your interpretation of the film, um, and they're trying to like find out what's wrong with him. And there's this scene, they showed it in the trailer too, where he's got both of his hands on the uh, on the walls. And his head is like lowered, and he just kind of like looks up slowly. It's terrifying. That feels like something out of a monster movie. And I was really unsettled and really intrigued. And then he straight up kills the guy with the pair of scissors just into the into the eye into the neck stabbing him over and over and over again until he collapses in a heap there's blood splatter all over his new white face paint and i felt so bad for the other guy the uh, the little person who everyone made fun of in the in their little like clown studio i guess and um you know arthur's like looking at him and he's like i'm not going to kill you go ahead you can leave and then he, the guy slowly tries to get by him, and Arthur just like, ah, just like shouts at him to scare him, and he runs to the door, very Joker, very Joker, and he runs to the door, but because he's so short, he can't reach the latch to unlock the door, and there was a moment where I'm just like, oh, that's mean, 
that's a cruel joke. And I thought he's just going to kill him there. But then he, you know, he asks, can you unlock the door? And Arthur like gets up, walks over to the door. He unlatches it, opens it and then shuts it again and looks at the guy. And you don't know as an audience member, whether he's going to kill him or let him go. And that is quintessential Joker. And so he does end up letting him go, gives him a little kiss on the head, sends him on his way. And I was like, that's, oh my God, like that's the Joker. And then afterwards, after he kills, uh, after he kills De Niro, he goes up to the camera and he's got his face in the camera, very uh, reminiscent of the Heath Ledger stuff when he was like talking into the camera with the, um, while he was killing the uh, bat fakes in the Dark Knight. Um Again, just referencing previous Joker stories. Uh, he's talking, the cops tackle him, he gets beaten up and then thrown into a cop car, and they're just driving along Gotham City as all of these riots are going on that were incited by him killing De Niro. Um, and you see him in a perfect, perfectly framed, the cinematography here is beautiful, uh, perfectly framed him, his head against the car window in the same way that his head was up against the bus window when we first see him. Um, just fantastic cinematic parallels but everyone's you know like he's the cop says you know this isn't funny this is all your fault and he just goes I know isn't it beautiful and then bam this ambulance just hits the car and then Joker's pulled out which is such a classic Joker thing like every single time you think oh he's gonna he's finally getting taken away by the cops and stuff something happens something erratic happens and this isn't something he planned this isn't like Heath Ledger's Joker where he planned everything down to the littlest detail this is the purest form of the Joker where everything is kind of happenstance but it always seems to work in his favor and so these uh, clown guys pull him out of the co- out of the cop car send him on the hood and then when he finally wakes up he stands on the car and sees everyone just like cheering for him and adoring him. And the moment, the moment that he becomes the Joker in my mind, that he has gone through this uh, cocoon period, Arthur died, he was in that, you know, developing, uh, developing period from that moment on into the moment that he springs as a new Joker butterfly. butterfly. I know this analogy is weird, is when he's standing on the car he puts his fingers up to his mouth, feeling like the blood in his mouth, and he uses that blood to create a bigger smile on his face. I was like, that's the Joker. That's the Joker. And he turns around, he's got his arms in the air, and he's just taking in the adoration of the rioters, and I'm like, this is the Joker. This has become a final origin story for the Joker. And then we get a hard cut, and it's Arthur, out of makeup, the green has been washed out of his hair, looking like Arthur Fleck again. Uh, sitting in what we can assume is Arkham Asylum, across from another therapist. And I thought it was really interesting that they picked someone who looked, I think, so similar to his first therapist. Uh, maybe like that was the impetus for what he does next. But he is sitting there, and he's, re- and you kind of get this idea. Again, talking about different theories and stuff, we're going to get to that. Um that he has been recounting this story. He's been remembering the events of this story. And you you see this cut to Bruce Wayne in Crime Alley, his parents dead at his feet, and he kind of chuckles to himself. 
and it's the it has so many layers so many connotations and the therapist is like what's so funny and there's this moment where the joker looks up at her and he goes you wouldn't get it and in this culture and i'm gonna just i'm gonna wax philosophical here for a second in this culture where everyone is looking for instant gratification where everyone is looking for like give me validation for everything i do even arthur throughout this entire film is wanting validation from people why aren't people respecting me why aren't people helping me why aren't people kind to me throughout this entire film we get to this point that is such a sharp contrast where arthur goes i don't need your validation i know it's funny you don't need to know it's funny because i know the truth and you see that we have finally had this metamorphosis this full character arc for him and him saying you wouldn't get it really puts the stamp on him becoming his own person and making that jump from Arthur to Joker. And then we get the final shot of the film, which is my, I I think it's my personal favorite sequence in the film. It might be. I, I'll have to, I don't know if I'd watch it again, but I'll, I'll just say this here just upon that first viewing. This is my favorite sequence of the film where he's walking out of this appointment and, uh, Everything is white. The hallway is white. His clothes are white. But you see he's leaving something behind with each step in his, like, he's leaving tracks. And after you get a little bit ways down the hallway, you see that it's blood. That he's leaving blood tracks with his shoes. And it's implied that he killed his therapist. Which is, I mean, it's awful. Because this lady seemed a bit more into it than his previous therapist. But you just see him tracking the blood behind him as he's heading down the hallway almost you know riding off into the sunset as the joker fully formed and uh you know frank sinatra's that's life is playing and he's just walking and walking and he finally like goes around the corner and you see him get chased down the other hallway by um by attendance he runs and he gets chased again and it's just it's so perfectly quintessential joker even when he's locked up even when he's in arkham asylum he's still the joker and no one is safe and i think that if anything perfectly encapsulates and shows who the joker is it's that final sequence so that is what i think about that um i talking about some of the things i'm gonna touch on it briefly if you want to hear more uh in depth about what i think about the possible theories and stuff about this feel free to let me know i would love to have that conversation with you um there's a couple different theories that a none of this happened and that uh all the events happen in Joker's head during this uh, conversation between him and the therapist at the very end. I don't like that theory. I don't. Because it's just like, oh, that was all a dream. And I cannot stand those stories that like wrap up that way. Um, another theory is that only certain things happened. Uh, which is, again, nah. Uh, another thing is that, you know, this is Pat that everything has everything that transpired in the film happened in the past and that this is the entire film is just joker in this therapy session with this therapist at the end remembering everything which i kind of uh 
subscribe to. Also, with the parentage angle of is Thomas Wayne his father? Is he not his father? Um, some people believe he is the father after we see that even though there is the adoption papers and all the stuff showing that Penny was crazy, we do see a photo of Thomas Wayne and Penny together that is that has a note written you have a pretty smile now that doesn't explicitly say like hey you got a pretty smile thanks for taking care of our child but like that's pretty damning evidence from thomas wayne earlier saying that i have nothing to do with that person so that's really interesting that possibly he is the child um also the idea that you know he's not her child uh, and that he was adopted and that all of this mental health issues that he's had is a direct result of the abuse he suffered is another interpretation. Um, I just, I love that in the spirit of the Joker, as he said, ripped straight from the pages of Alan Moore's Killing Joke, if he has a past, he prefers it to be multiple choice. And that's exactly what this film is. It is a choose-your-own-adventure, multiple choice, multiple interpretations, uh, multiple meanings film that is at every point and yet at no point a definitive answer. And I love that. I love, love, love that. I really, really like that. It is just so quintessential Joker in the understanding of that character and how nothing might be real at the same time that everything might be real. So that really speaks to the spirit of the character, and I really liked that. Um, so, final thoughts. First off, do not bring your kids to this film. Do not bring children to this film. I don't feel like I should have to say that, but going into the film, when I went and watched it, I saw at least three kids in the theater. Under the age, uh, it had to be under the age of 12. Do not bring them to this. This is violent, this is disturbing, this is unsettling, and while I understand and I can't tell people how to raise their children, do not bring them to this. There is no Batman here, there is no um, superhero, uh, good guy wins the end, bad guy pays. This is a haunting and disturbing film that should not be viewed by people who are not able to... Um, understand everything that happens here. And I just don't think that kids should watch this until they've gotten to a certain age and a certain understanding of how uh, things work, how, the society, how our society works, and how uh, mental health works. So that's just my blanket statement on the whole thing. Um, if I had to give it an arbitrary rating out of five, I would give it a solid four and a quarter out of five. So 4.25 out of five. Um, there were some things that I was a little uh, iffy about. Uh, it is slow. Like I said, for the first half hour, it's fairly slow and it takes a while to get going. But once it does, it really goes. Um, the, I don't want to say dismissal, but the minimized um, amount of female characters here, with the exception of Penny, feels archaic, I guess. Um, I would have liked to get more resolution with Zazie Beetz's character. I would have liked for Martha Wayne to have something to do in this film. And, um, I mean, that's that's pretty much it. But I think this film is definitely worth a, a first viewing at least. Um, after getting out of the film immediately, I was like, I don't know if I ever need to see this film again because I was so uncomfortable throughout. But I think that if a film really moves you that way, then it means something and it has you know like a 
stamp of quality approval here. So I really liked it. Um, the question, the big question that I know a lot of people are going to ask, and I have been dreading answering this. So the question that um, I know that people have already asked me and I haven't answered yet is, is this Joker better than Heath Ledger's Joker? And that's a really complicated question to answer uh, because they're very, there's two very different takes. Um, each character, each portrayal has aspects of the character that I enjoy and each uh, portrayal has aspects of the character that I don't enjoy. So, um, but if I had to make a choice, if I really, honest to God, had to choose and say whether or not uh, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker is better than Heath Ledger's Joker, I would have to say... It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And in preparation for Arrow Season 8 releasing next week, we are checking out all of the other DC TV shows. That's Batwoman, The Flash, and Supergirl. A triple feature this week. Uh, starting off with Batwoman. We're going to dive right into it because this uh, I can tell this episode's going long so uh we're gonna roll right through all three of these real quick first off batwoman the pilot episode one season one entitled pilot simple title simple episode really simple story i wasn't a huge fan of it i'll be honest um it didn't really catch my attention it didn't you know light the world on fire at least not for me um i i don't like being negative I don't like being negative, especially like in this golden age of uh, superhero and comic book media. But like the acting here was really stiff and the some of the ideas I didn't really understand, like um, Kate's dad sent her like all along the all over the world, basically retracing Bruce's steps as Batman just so she could be a crow. And then we go back to Gotham where the crows are and they're just about as useful as the regular cops. And I don't know if... I don't remember if they mentioned that it was like, oh, this was nothing but a ruse. But, like, really? I, I don't know. That didn't make any sense to me. Um, Doug Ray Scott plays uh, Kate's father, and he was fine. Doug Ray Scott's a good actor. Um, I just... He felt really subdued here, and I'm not sure if that's just because we were trying to put the focus on Kate and put the kind of put Ruby Rose in the driver's seat. But unfortunately, that left a lot for Ruby Rose to kind of carry when it came to this episode. And she just, she's stiff, man. She's real, real stiff. Um, I'm hoping that as time goes on, she's going to get. She's going to loosen up a little bit, but all of the, I don't know, like they kept, they said it at least twice, I think, in this episode. It's like, you're like the female Bruce Wayne. Like the creators were trying to be like, ah, it's, it's like we have a Batman show, but it's just, it's, 
it's just a girl. And it's like, I want to watch a Batwoman show. I want to watch a Kate Kane show. Kate Kane is awesome as a character. If you haven't listened to our Batwoman episode way back in year one, like, it's a big deal that Batwoman's getting a show. But I just, I, I didn't like how they were basically trying to hammer home, like, hey, if you close your eyes and just listen to what's going on, it's almost like it's Bruce here. And it doesn't, I don't think it helps that Bruce isn't there to kind of set the two of them apart. Um, I get it. You're trying to keep Bruce, Bruce Wayne, Clark Kent, that kind of stuff on the back burner so that they only show up in very specific appearances or on Titans. But I, I really think him not being there and then them just continually saying you're like the female Bruce Wayne you're the girl Bruce Wayne you're if Bruce Wayne was a girl it just it got irritating to me and I don't think it needs it because I actually thought the stunt work was all right here it looked good Ruby Rose sold it um I really liked Alice I thought she was interesting and I liked um her constant like going back into Alice in Wonderland text I just I I really want Ruby Rose to to grow into this role and I have faith that she will uh crazier things have happened but as of this specific episode I wasn't super impressed um so I hope that the season continues on and that it gets better uh, but it's probably not going to be, out of these three shows that I'm reviewing this week, um, it's probably not going to be a show that I watch week to week. I might go back and binge it um, just to see if it fits better together. But um, unlike Flash, unlike Arrow, unlike Supergirl, I'm probably not going to stick with this one week to week. So we'll see. Time will tell. But we are going to go ahead and roll right on to... Supergirl season or what is it season five season four uh episode one let me grab my let me get my notes all settled up here so this is da, 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 I'm vamping yeah okay so Supergirl season five episode one event horizon and if I had to describe this episode in three words it's cheese politics and technology um not exactly what you would equate with supergirl but i think it works i think it works together the opening of this is so ridiculous so this bus is going down the road the brakes are out because of course they are and there's stupid kids in the crosswalk like oh there's a bus we shouldn't get out of the way we should just stand in the middle of the road and the bus is going, and of course Supergirl stops it, and everyone's like, wow, Supergirl! And she gives like a wink to the bus driver, and then this little this little boy is just like, I want to be just like you when I grow up. And Supergirl says to him, I swear to God, says, well that's easy. All you gotta do is fight for what you believe in and seek justice. And I'm just like, this is amazing! This is so bad that it's amazing. And I mean, eventually, like, you find out this is, was a simulation and it could have been, like, played up as, like, oh, this is, like, predictive text of what this possibly could have said. But I just loved how cheesy it sounded. It was fantastic. I loved it. I loved it. Um, and then, so going into politics, uh, the last 
I want to say the last two seasons, we could probably even all trace this all the way back to the first season. Uh, the but the last two seasons have definitely been very political, and this season really continues that on. Um, I wasn't surprised by that. I was surprised at kind of how blatant it was, but I I liked that they were getting into the effect of politics in modern day media. Uh, the idea that uh, Catco gets bought out by I think her name's Andrea Rojas, um, who is definitely going to be the villain of the season. And she's basically like, well, I know technology and I know that we need hits for the website. So all of our, you know, hard hitting pieces are now going to be fluff, fluff clickbait pieces that will get people to just click on the website, whether they stay or whether we're actually reporting on genuine quality news. And, you know, Kara going against that, James ends up quitting, you know, to pursue his passion, whatever that may be. So I thought it was interesting, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with this. Uh, this has to end with either Kara or Kat coming back and, like, buying the company back, getting the company back somehow. But I'm interested to see what they do to get there. And then finally, uh, technology. Technology was big in this. They had these new like contact lenses that are like VR but they're just contacts which is far in a way from the technology that we have even on Earth 1 I think um so Earth 38 is like so far ahead of Earth 1 in technology that it's a little ridiculous but um I liked it and I like that we're that's probably going to go into later um I can absolutely see somebody get like uh defeat some villain gets defeated but they're you know they have their contacts on or something and then they are stuck in this continuous loop of triumphing over supergirl over and over and over again but it's all in their head so look out for that as the season goes on we'll see um but overall uh the big push here was lena versus kara lena as we saw at the end of last season it was revealed to her that kara is supergirl and she was really bitter about that so it is um interesting because we genuinely go through this episode with kara trying to tell lena about her identity and of course it's you know cheesy soap opera drama but i think um, Melissa Benoist sells it really well and Lena even though and I've been saying this from the very first season um, I don't know if Lena's actress is like British or anything but there's this weird accent that keeps peeking through every so often in her dialogue it's gotten better throughout the seasons but it still shows up and it still just takes me out of it but she was really good in this episode as this you know vengeful scorned person who thought that you know her best friend was lying to her and then we get this fake out that lena has forgiven her after she confesses great scene by the way melissa benoist really killed the car confessing to lena her identity scene and i was pretty much like okay i'm glad we settled that we're gonna move on but no we are finally getting that luthor versus supergirl uh or luthor versus house of l um story that we have to get in any kind of superman supergirl adjacent story so that is officially where we're going this it looks like that's going to be the story of the season along with this b storyline of malafa ak officially coming into supergirl he has been uh brought in by the monitor because the monitor is a dick 
I guess. And um, it looks like his crusade against Jean is going to be probably the B storyline for the season. So I'm sure this is going to be a good season. I liked what they did with Manchester Black and um, uh, what was he? Uh, Patriot last uh, last season. I really liked it. I'm a big fan of Manchester Black and I hope that they give enough time to Malafa Ak and really make him a compelling villain. So that is Supergirl. And then finally, we have The Flash. Season six of The Flash, episode one, entitled Into the Void. Um, this episode was really interesting. I think, I mean, I might be biased because I've been enjoying The Flash since the very first season, but this was my pick of the week between those three. Um, I think this was the strongest episode of the three because what The Flash has always really been able to do is balance the campy aspects along with the actual human drama that goes on in the episode. Of course, sometimes it does lean into the melodrama a little too hard. It is the CW, but I still enjoy every single season of The Flash, even the weaker ones. Um, and this season started off really strong, uh, mostly dealing with uh, kicking right off. You know, it flashes four months later. Um, Nora's uh, message to her parents at the end of last season has been erased. And uh, we kick off four months later with Flash versus Godspeed. But not the Godspeed we think it is. Uh, we do know that it is August Hart, and we do know that it is probably the same godspeed from Nora's time. However, the godspeed that Flash unmasks here is some kind of mindless drone that only speaks in like dial-up modem sounds. Um, so I think that's interesting. I, I like that we have kind of a speedster on the loose deal that will probably be followed up maybe if not this half of the season, the next season. Um, I, I overall enjoyed it, and I enjoyed that this episode dealt with uh, the concept of grief, because Barry and uh, Iris got really close to Nora last season, and to have her just kind of erased was really sad. Um, I know I was really, like, I was really devastated by Nora being, you know, just wiped out of existence at the end of last season. And uh, you can tell that it's been bothering both Iris and Barry a lot. Like, they lost their daughter, but they aren't able to support each other because they don't know how to feel about it. Uh, Barry kind of just throws himself into work. He thinks if he just, you know, as a speedster, if he keeps moving, then he won't ever have to stop and think about what happened. And then Iris is just fixated on gathering up anything that can remind her of Nora or, you know, bring about the Nora that, the version of Nora that they got, which is really interesting. And I don't think we've ever seen this before. Like we've never um, touched on this in any time travel story that I've ever, uh, ever heard of where the parents are worried that their future child might not measure up to the actual future child that came back in time to meet them and i think that's a really interesting idea and that would be something that they could uh play with in the future so that would be really cool uh but another thing that this episode did that i think has been almost a running gag in this show is caitlin's awful taste in men <laughs> 
Um, she reconnects with her uh, old med school buddy Ramsey Rosso, Rosso, something like that, and um, you get this feeling that there's something sketchy about him. You know, especially because it was revealed that he is going to be the villain for at least this half of the season, and right away, like Caitlin's like, we should get coffee. And, like, we should hang out. And, like, they're holding hands. And, like, they go to coffee. And she's, like, really, like, in this, like, I'm trying to live my life and stuff. And I'm, like, we know that whoever Caitlyn has a good, you know, has an attraction to, they're probably an awful person. Ralph included, who makes a wonderful debut or a re-debut back in this episode. Um, Ralph's Ralph's getting better, but he is an, he was an awful person. Um but I really liked how they kind of like hit it on the head right away. It's like, all right, we're going to get, you know, all of Caitlyn's delusion out of the way right away by showing that Ramsey was just trying to use her to get to Star Labs equipment. And then later on, he's able to do some like black market dealings or whatever and uh, get his uh, dark matter and inject himself with this formula he'd been working on, which of course turns him into blood work. Really, really looking forward to seeing what they do with blood work. He's a more recent addition to the Flash Rogues Gallery, so I think that that gives them a lot more leeway on what to do with that character. And I mean, Sandil Ramamurthy is a great, great actor, so I'm really excited to see him go throughout the season and grow into that villain. Uh, but I think the standout for me was um, this this uh, plot point about the black holes and our boy Chester. Our boy Chester, who is, you know, probably, you know, the science equivalent of a Twitch streamer, uh, building stuff out of scraps in his garage. Uh, he was just infectious. He was fun. And I really liked his energy. And I hope that once they are able to cure him of whatever, you know, dark matter is still in his uh whatever residual black uh dark matter is within him that he kind of sticks around because he was fun and he brought a good energy and he might be the person to take over the spot once um cisco leaves because we do know that is going to be some at some point in this season and then um we got that wonderful uh, moment when the black hole the large black hole opens up in the central city um they have to go in and save Chester, the other half of Chester's soul, I guess. And uh, Cisco whips up Barry a new suit to be able to, you know, sustain in the black hole. Looks fantastic. Looks just as good as it did in all the promo photos. And then as he goes off, Cisco plays Flash. Ah, and I loved it. I, I jumped out of my seat. I was so excited. And it's so cheesy. And they talk about how cheesy it is. But Cisco's like, it's me, basically. And everyone's like, yeah, you're right. So once again, Cisco killing it. I'm uh, I'm disappointed that he's leaving after the season. But I get that he his character doesn't really have a whole lot else to go. Like there's nowhere. I think we've told all the stories that we could tell with this character. And then we did get that... Um, cliffhanger at the end the little post credits where we see that barry was able to save nora's jacket out of the black hole and they go into the uh the time vault where you see that he's kind of set it up as a shrine for her and then the monitor shows up because as we said before say it with me now he's a dick 
And he basically is just there to be like, hey, yeah, just so you know, um, you're going to die. And Iris is like, wait, no, wait a second. That future newspaper said we got at least like five more years. And the monitor is like, no, no, you're going to die. And he pretty much just tells them that, you know, December 10th, 2019, which it has been fact-checked, is the date that the Flash portion of the Crisis uh, crossover airs is going to be when Barry runs, you know, at least if we're going off of the original Crisis comic, runs against the Anti-Monitor's machine and fades away into the Speed Force. Uh, we did see a peak of this in last year's Elseworlds crossover, uh, but I thought that uh, Oliver making that deal with the Monitor during Elseworlds prevented that, so I'm not sure exactly what we're supposed to know or not know when it comes to this, but I'm looking forward to it. Crisis on Infinite Earths, it's coming. Um, so yeah, overall, the three, the three episodes, I would probably rank Batwoman, Supergirl, then Flash. Uh, there were highs and lows, peaks and valleys, but overall, a strong start, I think, for this season of the CW shows. And that is going to do it for this week's weekly review. Next week, we will be kicking off Arrow Season 8, the final chapter, the final season of Arrow. Can you believe eight years ago we were going to get all of this when uh, Oliver was just running around in his green leather hoodie and grease paint? Um, I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do. This is supposed to be a very crisis-heavy uh, season because they have to set up Oliver's sacrifice if he does sacrifice. And um, I'm looking forward to it. So tune in next week for the weekly review, of course, starting on Arrow Season 8, Episode 1. But for now, let's hop on over to this week's Comics Countdown. <laughs> Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop and Comicsology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book as well. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you would like to request that I try out, feel free to do so on either of our social medias, at Geeksplained Pod, that's at Geeksplained P-O-D, on Twitter or Instagram, or through email, because I'm an old man and I still read emails, to geeksplained at gmail.com. But before we get to the books for this week, let's talk about the last week. we got to take a look back at the Geeksplained Pick of the Week of last week. And this isn't the book that I thought I was going to pick. I thought for sure I was going to pick House of X number six of six, and I thought for sure that it was going to blow any other book out of the water until I read Justice League number 33, written by Scott Snyder with James Tynan IV, and it is... Oh my god, it's so good! Oh my god, so we're right in the thick of the Justice Doom War right now. We've got three separated factions of Justice League teams. One in the past, one in the present, and one in the future. But all of that pales in comparison to the last page reveal, which I'm going to get to. The book is just good. The book is just really, really good. It feels like an event book while still being an ongoing. You're not paying an extra 
you know, dollar or two to get this kind of quality content. And that really speaks to everything that goes into the book, from the art to the story structure to the writing. It's really, really well done, and I've been really enjoying it so far. I, of course, love all of the Justice Society stuff that we got in this book. It's incredible. The Justice Society is wonderful. You can't change my mind. All of their inclusion is wonderful here. But the big thing that happened in this book, the last page reveal is the one that made me say... Damn, I think I think House of X got unseated here, and it stems from the final uh, scene of this issue where Kamandi, Boy of the Future, has left the remaining Justice Leaguers of the Future, who have more or less all been defeated. Um, to request the help of another Justice League. But this isn't just any Justice League. This is Justice League Beyond of the Batman Beyond universe. The final reveal is uh, Kamandi standing in this very futuristic-looking city, uh, describing everything that's happening, going on, and some off-panel character says, okay, so what do you need? And he says, well, it's pretty simple. And then you flip the page, and it says more justice. And you see Batman Beyond. You see Superman Beyond. You see Warhawk. You see Green Lantern. All of the characters that you loved in Batman Beyond, all of the Justice League characters that you loved in that cartoon, here, well-represented and ready to throw down. So I'm really looking forward to the next issue of Justice League, especially because we're going to get some... Batman Beyond teaming up with hopefully, fingers crossed, Bruce Wayne Batman in his prime, and I cannot wait. But that's last week. Let's talk about this week. So this week, I've got seven books for you here. We've got one, two, three, uh, four Marvel books and three DC books, so let's jump right in. Starting off with Doctor Doom number one, written by Christopher Cantwell with art by Salvador La Roca. Um, this is it. Um, it's a brand new ongoing for one of if not the best villain in marvel comics so let's uh without further ado let's jump into the synopsis here the crack of doom from christopher cantwell comes a new monthly ongoing series victor von doom scientist sorcerer disfigured face twisted soul has been spending much of his time warning against a trillion dollar global effort to create the first artificial black hole wrestling with visions of an entirely different life a better future dr doom finds himself at a crossroads a catastrophic act of terrorism kills thousands and the prime suspect is doom Victor will have to push his unexplained thoughts aside and focus on remaining alive, as the title of Most Wanted Man is thrust upon him, left with no homeland, no armies, no allies, indeed nothing at all. Will the reign of Doctor Doom come to an abrupt halt? So I'm really interested. Uh, The synopsis sounds really interesting, basically turning him into... uh, 
public enemy number one and him almost having to go into hiding with something like this sounds really cool so i'm looking forward to it next up we have detective comics number 1013 written by pete j tomasi with art by doug monkey uh, this is batman versus mr freeze this has been really good so far first chapter went off without a hitch and i'm really looking forward to this next book so let's jump into the synopsis here Mr. Freeze is so close to reviving Nora, but Batman can't let it happen. Mr. Freeze has never been more vicious or more deadly. There's nothing more dangerous than a desperate man with a cold gun, and Gotham City is going to learn that firsthand. So I love quality Mr. Freeze stories, and they are so few and far between, and this has really shaken up or shaping up to be uh, one of those. So I'm really looking forward to this. Next up, we have Web of Black Widow, number two of five, written by Jody Hauser with art by Stephen Mooney. I really liked the first issue. It sets up everything that we need to know going into the rest of these issues for this book. And I cannot wait to dive into this issue, especially with the implications of this synopsis. So let's jump into the synopsis here. Soldiers, assassins, lovers, the widow and the winter reunite. Natasha Romanoff and Bucky Barnes have a history as long as war, companions since the widow's earliest days in the Red Room, when both were trapped in service to the wrong side. It's one of the greatest and most tragic love stories of the Marvel Universe. Now the world will try to get between them once again. And with the widow missing memories, she may find herself losing the only person who would have forgiven her for what she has to do next. Russian's hard. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. I love the relationship between Natasha and Bucky. Uh, it's one of the most underserved and unappreciated uh, comic book romances in all of comics, not just in Marvel. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with that relationship in this book. Next up, we have Batman Universe, number four of six, written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Nick Darrington. I just, I love this book. It feels weird because I've been so critical of Brian Michael Bendis so far, but I just love everything about this book. It's been so good so far, and I, I'm really, really excited for this next one, especially with the cliffhanger of last issue and the implications of the synopsis. So let's jump into the synopsis here. Available to comic shops for the first time. Batman and Green Lantern have followed the trail of Vandal Savage back to the Old West and right into an encounter with Jonah Hex. But before they can stop Savage from finding the mysterious Fabergé egg, Green Lantern disappears and Batman lands back where his story began, Crime Alley. So I'm really looking forward to it. I kind of wish we gotten more than one issue in the Old West because Batman in the Old West is so... Uh, weird that I really want there to be a lot of it. But um, yeah, I'm okay with uh, with just a single issue, I guess, if it has to be a single issue. So really, really been enjoying this book so far. Pick up the previous issues for this. It's only three other issues before this, and then this one, it is worth your time. Next up, we have Invaders number 10, written by Chip Zdarsky, with art by Carlos Magno and Butch Geese. Goose, Goose, I mispronounced your name. I apologize. But I 
am so excited about this book. This book has been so good. If you have been sleeping on Invaders, you need to do yourself a favor and at least pick up the first trade. If it doesn't hook you, it won't hook you, but I guarantee it's going to hook you. It's been so good, and I'm really looking forward to picking this up. Let's jump into the synopsis here. Captain America and Winter Soldier have sacrificed everything to find the Genus Formula. But can they overcome both Roxxon and Namor? And after a major betrayal, whose side is Namor even on as Doomsday approaches? Dead in the Water continues here. So, book's been so good. Um, we're continuing the Mad King storyline with Namor, who is losing more and more autonomy of his own body. Been really, really enjoying this book so far, and you should pick it up. Next up, we have Event Leviathan, number five of six. This is it. This is supposed to give us the answers to who Leviathan is. I've got my theories. I'm looking forward to hearing yours, and I'm looking forward to seeing if all of us are possibly wrong. So let's jump into the synopsis here. From the Eisner Award-winning team of writer Brian Michael Bendis and artist Alex Maleev, it's the reveal of the biggest mystery of the summer. Who is Leviathan, and what is their true goal? You're going to find out here. Plus, Lois Lane had a whole other team working this story the entire time, and oh man, someone found something. So yeah, that was essentially the cliffhanger of uh, last issue. Really good stuff. I'm really looking forward to seeing who Leviathan is. So um, if they pull this off, if they do a really good reveal, this might end up being the pick of the week of last week next week. So let's find out. But the big book for the week, I think, is Powers of Ten, number six of six. And... Uh, this is it. This is leading into the Dawn of X. This is the final chapter. We are being promised big reveals here, so I'm hoping, especially with how big the last couple issues have been of both House of X and Powers of Ten, that this is going to just fulfill everything that we need to know going into this new line of X book. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The Inevitable Truth. The Revelatory Tale of mutant kind's fall comes to a conclusion that will lay the groundwork of the X-Men stories for years to come. Superstar writer Jonathan Hickman and rising star artist R.B. Silver wrap the series that reveals everything. So I'm really interested to see what they do here because as I've said before, uh, House of X has been the stronger of the two books, but Powers of Ten, I think, finally wrapped up the future storylines. Fingers crossed. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what this book does. This book uh, looks like we're going to get the very first uh, appearance of current modern day Moira. We haven't seen her at all in the present day. We've seen her very briefly last issue in House of X number uh, 6 of 6, which was still a flashback to a month before the events of this book. So I'm hoping... Now we get some answers on where she's been, what she's been doing, and how she's going to influence the book going forward. And that does it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, 
We have Doctor Doom number one, Detective Comics number 1013, Web of Black Widow number two of five, Batman Universe number four of six, Invaders number ten, Event Leviathan number five of six, and Powers of Ten number six of six. If there are any books I missed, feel free to let me know on either the social medias or through email. I love discovering new books. I'm right now in the middle of reading uh, Paper Girls. It's been so good! If you have Comixology, it, it has the uh, first volume on there uh it's been so good and i would not have gotten the recommendation to read this book without you guys so really looking forward to it if you have a comic you would like to request i check out feel free to do so and i'm just excited we're heading into the fall lots of big stuff dawn of x is coming up and i'm really excited to witness the final chapter of that book that leads into the new status quo for the world of the x-men and that is gonna do it for the show this week i think i am going to hold off on the geeksplain mailbag for this week just because we did run a little long with the joker review i i had a lot of thoughts i had to talk about it so we will um hold off on the submitted questions thank you to who uh, those of you who did uh, write in this week, I appreciate it. And we will hold those off until next week. So make sure you tune in for that. And uh, yeah, let me know what you thought of Joker, whether you liked it, whether you disliked it. What did you like about the movie? What did you dislike about the movie? And what did you think of all the stuff we talked about this week? What did you think of the CW premieres this week? Are you excited for Arrow? Um, are you looking forward to Hickman's X-Men officially you know, kicking off next week? everything that we covered including all the new york comic-con news like i said i'm really excited about doctor strange the end probably like more excited than i should be and i'm also um i'm really excited but kind of nervous about donny kate's thor i'm i love donny kate's writing i think he's doing a really great job with all of his books and i'm sure he's gonna do a great job with thor but i don't want him to do away with or diminish anything that jason aaron did so we'll eventually get the new the uh the answers to all of that we'll get all the uh payoff to all of these burning questions we have but um, yeah, thanks for tuning in to part two of Joketober. Uh, look forward to next week where we will be covering the video game aspect, you know, starring the Clown Prince of Crime. And we will be spotlighting one series of games in particular. You might know what I'm talking about. You might not. So tune in next week for that same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.